This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. With me today is Dr. Jenny Miller, Executive Director of the Global, Global Climate and Health Alliance, to discuss the recent call for an international fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Dr. Miller, Jenny, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Very pleased to be here. Dr. Miller's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, anthropogenic warming was again on full display this past summer. Record temperatures, droughts, wildfires, and extreme weather events, including typhoons and hurricanes, were recorded uh, worldwide. Despite an increasing destabilizing biosphere, the moreover, uh, moreover, the result of the fact that fossil fuel use accounts for about 80% of global warming, according to a recent report by the International Energy Association and the OECD, Global public subsidies of fossil fuel subsidies almost doubled to $700 billion in 2021. In the U.S., our economy remains significantly dependent on coal use. For example, it generates 20% of our country's power, or almost twice as much as the electricity generated by wind and solar. Podcast listeners are well aware the health harms caused by climate breakdown are innumerable and unrelenting, disproportionately harming children, the elderly, and minority communities generally. Though the planet is projected to warm over 2.5 Celsius this century, per a recent report by United in Science, global warming has already reached the lower end of five endgame negative climate tipping points. This finding led the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez to state, quote unquote, the report shows climate impacts heading into uncharted territory of destruction, quote unquote, or what he termed climate carnage. With me again to discuss an international fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is, again, Global Climate and Health Alliance, Jenny Miller. So with that, Jenny's background, um, let's get right into this. My first question, of course, could you describe uh, the mission and work of the Alliance? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, David. Um, the Global Climate and Health Alliance was founded in 2011 by a number of health organizations that had already started working on the issue of climate change and started looking at both national and international climate policymaking and trying to make a difference in that, actually. Um, and they they came together because they realized that in order to have an impact, the health community really needed to come together and raise a joint voice on the issue of climate change. So the alliance was founded on the margins of uh, the UN climate negotiations in 2011. And since then, it's grown to, I believe we're at about 130 organizations with a reach much more broadly to over 600 organizations and, you know, reaching organizations that represent about 46 million health professionals worldwide. Um, so we work together to try to ensure that um, climate policy is actually progressing and going to um, protect people from the impacts of, of out-of-control climate change. 
and also that when climate policies are being designed, they're they're designed with health in mind because kind of the the, the positive potential is that many of the things we need to do to address climate change would have immense benefits for people's health through things like cleaner air, more livable cities, um, access to healthier foods. And so there's a lot of potential for improved health. Um, and we want to ensure that both that health is protected from those serious impacts that you were describing and that we can actually win-win from taking climate policy action that delivers those health benefits. Okay, thank you uh, for that. Uh, relative to, since I noted coal, I've, I've cited this in writings, but I, I, I did think about including it. But uh, Drew Shindell from Duke testified before the Congress last year saying that if even if coal was free, it's unaffordable when you calculate the public health costs associated. Let's get right into this treaty. So again, uh, on background, if you can explain, although you partially explained it in, in your answer, uh, but more specific, obviously, the impetus for this fossil fuel uh, non-proliferation treaty. Uh, and then, of course, um, since this was just recently announced in the last few weeks, uh, if you could just give sort of preliminary status thereof. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let me just start by saying people do need access to energy. And that is not only an economic issue, but it is a health issue. So people need energy access for cooking and heating and light and for businesses and jobs and for education and even for hospitals and healthcare, hospitals, clinics and healthcare systems themselves. And this is true in the U.S., around the world. And in fact, in developing countries, there's a significant need for increased energy access. But people shouldn't have to pay with health for access to the energy that supports jobs, education, healthcare coverage, etc. Clean energy solutions exist. They need to be scaled up. And we've got to make that a pri priority. So in terms of what the, what was the impetus for calling for a treaty, um, as you so articulately described um, in your opening, we are nowhere near on track with action on climate change. And we're facing a climate catastrophe. We're already feeling the impacts of it, as again, as you described. Um, and those impacts uh, affect many sectors, many aspects of our lives, including people's health. And we're seeing those impacts all around us. I live in California. We no longer have sort of summer and fall. We have fire season with neighborhoods burnt to the ground, wildfire smoke blanketing major population centers, um, you know, with the air pollution that that implies. We just saw Hurricane Ian flatten parts of Florida, which is where I grew up, mm. and they're fortunately still counting the bodies from the from that storm. Um, but meanwhile, uh, as you noted, uh, subsidies for fossil fuels are increasing. Uh, there's a production gap report each year that looks at the difference between planned production of fossil fuels and where we need to be in order to limit warming to 1.5 um, degrees centigrade. 
And the 2021 report found the world's governments plan to produce more than twice the amount of fossil fuels in 2030 than would be consistent with limiting warming to what the science has told us is, is actually safe. So the, we're not getting the job done of tackling climate change. And I think part of the problem is that we haven't really faced the root cause, which is the use of fossil fuels, which drive the majority of greenhouse gas emissions. We haven't tackled that root cause head on. Um, the Paris Agreement didn't mention fossil fuels. It didn't mention right. coal or oil or gas. Um, at last year's UN climate negotiations, for the first time ever, coal and fossil fuels were mentioned in the outcome document, but it was a very watered down commitment that was made in the end. And so we don't have a mechanism right now to drive international attention to an agreement on and action on really getting rid of fossil fuels and making the clean energy transition. Okay, thank you. Just uh, to be complete in my uh, opening comments, I said uh, the problem is 80% fossil fuel use combustion. Generally, uh, about 15% is is considered the result of uh, agriculture. So just to complete the, the picture there, you did anticipate an answer, uh, my subsequent question, uh, relative to uh, COP26 failure, of course, not not unrelated, of course, very much related to these COP meetings and every uh, every annual struggle in trying to produce results. So let's let's go on. I do have a couple of related questions. Um, first, let me ask you um, who's who's signed on. I, I in the Lancet, you had a lengthy press release, uh, which was well done. Uh, your organization, uh, the Lancet, on September twenty fourth. Uh, ran a piece um, on it and mentioned a few organizations, but who's who's signed on so far? Yeah, so I, I think um, quite notably, the World Health Organization has signed on to this call for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Um, that really is um, notable and that's 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 really significant it's hard to to understate how significant mm -hmm. it is the world health organization has called for a fossil fuel treaty um on the international level uh some of the major organizations that have signed on are the world medical association which represents doctors all around the world the international pediatric association the pediatricians the World Federation of Public Health Associations, the World Heart Federation has signed on, the International Council of Psychologists, um, the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, uh, which was an organization that won the Nobel oh, Prize, Prize right. for their work on, uh, on nuclear war uh, prevention. And then we also have um, international uh, health student organizations, the International Federation of Medical Student Associations and the International Pharmacy Student uh, Pharmacy Students uh, Federation, you know, because the the young up and coming health professionals are also seeing this looming threat in the world that they're going to practice in and are, are very much a part of calling for action on climate change. So those, that's just an example of some of the folks that signed on at the international level. Um, 
in the U.S., um, I think the the most um, the, the 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 one to really highlight is the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, which is a consortium of uh, quite a number. I believe it's about thirty or forty, but I'd have to go back and count. Um, uh, medical associations and medical societies um, that represents six hundred thousand clinical practitioners in the U.S. and includes groups like the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Family Physicians Association, um, the, um, you know, the association that the emer- for the emergency physicians. So really represents um, across uh, U.S., uh, the U.S. medical practitioner community. Um, and they're, they're a strong supporter of the call for a treaty. Uh, per the uh, Lancet noting, uh, they cited as well 100 Nobel laureates, uh, the Vatican, and various other organizations. I'm assuming there's a, this list can be found somewhere on your website, those that have signed on. Yeah, so the health letter in calling for a treaty um, kind of joins up with letters that have been written by other groups or sectors. So there was a, a, a letter written by this group as you of Nobel laureates, including the Dalai Lama. There was a letter that was written uh, from the Vatican. There's been a letter from parents organizations. There's been a letter from youth. Um, there, the, all of this is kind of brought together under a, um, an initiative for the fossil fuel, uh, calling for a not fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. So the, those other letters can, as well as the, the health communities call for this can all be found on the fossil fuel treaty website. Um, on our website, you can find a link to the, the letter from the health community calling for this and, uh, and more information about all of this. Okay, thank you. Um, all right. Reference was made to give a sense of, of what's being, uh, or to further define what's being asked, that the analogy has been made, that this would be somewhat similar to the analogy here is the World Health Organization's Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. Uh, and in fact, the additional detail here is that this would be a binding and that there'd be some legal enforcement thereof. But can you uh, further explain what this would amount to by uh, this analogy to the uh, Framework Convention on Tobacco? Yeah. So, you know, it, as uh, most people know, there are a number of international treaties. The, toba- the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control is one of them, and that, uh, I believe, was the first um, treaty that was actually spearheaded by the World Health Organization in the of the World Health Assembly, um, but there is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. There are, you know, a wide number of, uh, of course, a variety of other kinds of treaties. Um, and the way the, you know, there are a number of different ways to getting to a treaty. Um, oftentimes, there are a group of champion countries that kind of take the in the development process for the treaty, um, and they can bring that treaty forward through different venues. The the tobacco control uh, treaty was brought through the World Health Assembly, which is where the world's health ministers come together. 
Um, a treaty can also be developed through the UN General Assembly, um, but also could have a dedicated process for establishing that treaty. And the other thing to note is treaties can started with a group of countries that are, are prepared to take up the issue, drive it forward, sign on to the treaty, even if it doesn't have kind of universal sign-on, um, and then the, the treaty momentum uh, as uh, additional parties on. So there, there are a variety of pathways here. I think the key thing is we want an international mechanism that is transparent and science-based, and that has real teeth, you know, that has real um, uh, consequences um, and real accountability for the, for the phase-out of fossil fuels. And, uh, you know, to kind of get that process started, um, that, that accountability mechanism, I believe it was just last week that a global registry of fossil fuels was launched. The other thing that happened uh, last week during the um, UN General Assembly uh, was that, I'm sorry, I believe it was before, the first country to take position on a fossil fuel, on the fossil fuel, um, Vanuatu, which is a small island, small island that is facing significant sea level rise, stood up in the General Assembly while it was meeting in New York and, and called for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. So that's kind of the first step, uh, you know, in, in developing is to have a country that's willing to start to champion it, have under and to, to develop it further. You're right. Uh, there was comment made at the at the UN. Uh, to pick up on the UN, I quoted uh, the Secretary General uh, in my opening because I frequently quote him because he is frequently quotable as it relates to this problem. In fact, I, I keep a file on, on what uh, Mr. Gutierrez is. He's Portuguese, as most people probably know, about his comments about this problem. Uh, I mean, he cannot be more emphatic Uh I mean, probably four or five years now, uh, he has spoken very bluntly about this problem. So relative to uh, the Secretary General's position, to what extent do you think the dots will connect between this effort and uh, the UN formally? Uh, with COP27 coming up, IPCC's work continuing, uh, how, how much of a push might you expect from the Secretary General of the UN? I mean, he's been such a leader on this issue and Absolutely. such fantastic voice to have in this space. He's been calling it like he sees it, and uh, it's just been uh, a real inspiration to see him be so bold and so clear and so strong. Um, so that's really, really important, and I think it's um, – I think it's huge to kind of have those of us in the health community increasingly step up alongside him and, you know, come come out with equally strong statements um, because he's absolutely right. You know, we're, we're facing catastrophe. 
the only way to avoid that catastrophe is by really stepping up our action and doing so fast and making this a priority. And the consequences for health are are catastrophic, to overuse the word. Um, so it's really valuable having him being that leading voice and, uh, and, and leading the charge on it. Um, COP, as you say, the UN climate negotiations are coming up. COP 27 is in November. Um, the health representatives of the health community will be there. The world health organization will have a pavilion inside the kind of negotiating zone, the so-called blue zone. Um, Dr. Tedros will be attending COP for the first few days of the, of the session. Um, and representatives from a number of health organizations from around the world will also be there to carry this message. Uh, and I think that just speaks to the urgency that we feel around this in order to protect people's health. Um, so we're, we're going to be there pushing for big commitments from COP, um, calling for stronger language, a real commitment to a fossil fuel phase out, um, and and also elevating some of the other issues, the kind of equity issues globally and the, the need that developing countries have for support from wealthier countries that have the greater historical responsibility for climate change to really support the clean energy transition, as well as um, adaptation to the climate impacts and, and response to the climate impacts that they're, they're already feeling, that all of us are already feeling, but that are really hitting kind of the, the lowest, uh, least developed and lowest income countries the hardest. Okay, so there you're talking about loss and damage and reparations. Uh, so that may be considered the lead uh, issue or, or, or matter uh, undertaken, hopefully accomplished at COP27 since the promise was made at the $100 billion by 2020, and we've not come close to that. Um, let me ask you, per the U.S., so you, you obviously uh, the lead White House staffer is former Senator John Kerry, do you have any, I'm asking you to speculate here, of course, any guess relative to um, how uh, he, his office might be receptive. Also, too, I know the Department of Health and Human Services is spending a lot of prep time this month. Uh, I don't think they've decided exactly how they're going to play at COP27, at least from what I've uh, heard uh, most recently. Um, but Secretary Becerra, obviously, of course, is is serving in that position as HHS Secretary. Uh, any any comments or speculation relative to those two uh, climate leaders uh, in the U.S.? Yeah. Um, so I've not heard yet that there's been any engagement from the you know this U.S. administration uh, on this notion of a fossil fuel treaty, a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Um, I would love to see the U.S. step up and mm -hmm. support it. Um, I've not yet seen any signals that that's the case, but I'm I'm hopeful, and you know, I would love to see that happen. And I know that there are um, health organizations in the United States that are 
pushing for this, supporting this call for a treaty. Um, I know that uh, in at times past, the health voice on climate change in the U.S. has been very influential. Um, so my hope is that those voices will be heard along with with the others that are calling for this and that the that the US could become one of those champion countries that helps to carry this this forward and make this a reality um as far as engagement at cop um I've been encouraged by some of the things coming out of the current administration the inflation reduction act mm-hmm contain some really interesting things to support progress on climate change. Um, the HHS also established the Office of uh, Climate Health and Equity, and I think that is an important step. And at the same time, the U.S. Uh, has been on the international stage a sort of three steps forward, two steps back, (laughs) two steps forward, three steps back kind of player. And so I think we're in a position um, as the U.S. um, and the U.S. leadership and U.S. government, uh, you know, kind of has to prove itself on the international stage right now um, and really show up and show that it is prepared to be a leader on climate and health and, and follow through on, on commitments it makes um, because it's it's been a, a bad several years. Um, the U.S. really stepped way, way back under the previous administration mm-hmm. and actually was, I think that was very damaging to the momentum on addressing climate change. Well, absolutely. Hard to deny. Just uh, for clarity's sake, and I, and I saw this was cited again in the Lancet piece, uh, global healthcare systems, uh, uh, in some, if they were their own country, would be the fifth largest emitter of uh, carbon, both direct and indirect uh, emissions. Um, so, healthcare is a is a substantial contributor to the problem. And I'll just add, uh, U.S. healthcare, although it treats just four percent of the world's population, it accounts for twenty five percent of annual global healthcare emissions. So, uh, U.S. healthcare has an outsized uh, carbon footprint. Um, I do want to ask the question, the, the treaty, uh, there are individuals, uh, health professionals amongst other scientists, academics, as you noted, who can sign. How, if one wanted to sign on, could one sign on? I, a very practical question. Yeah, absolutely. So it, the, the, there is still absolutely both the opportunity and um, the the necessity to have stronger and more support for this because that's what's going to help get it done. Um, the for health organizations or individual health prof- professionals who want to sign on, um, the place to do so you can either come to the the Global Climate and Health Alliance website, um, climate. Uh, what is it? Sorry, globalclimateandhealthalliance.org. dot um, org, or you can go to fossilfueltreaty.org, dot uh, org, and under their take action tab, you can find the health letter. Um, if you're not a part of the health sector, um, there are other places on the fossil fuel fuel treaty website that 
you know, enable others from any other sector to sign on as well. And all of that support, I think, is is really, really needed. We need to um, bring a joint voice to this to kind of build that momentum to get this done. Yes, yeah, so I'll certainly want to, I asked that question practically, I'll post the link uh, with this audio uh, if listeners want to um, uh, further. I, I do have um, sort of a generic question. This wasn't uh, one that I forwarded, but I always so amazed. I read recently uh, that, and here's the statistic, percentage of U.S. voters who view climate change as the most important problem facing the country. Okay, the most important problem, percentage of U.S. voters, 1%. If you break yeah. that question down, of U.S. voters under 30 who see it as the most important problem facing the country, it rises to a whopping 3%. Mm. What, what's, you've been at this a while, as I have. How do you interpret that? Yeah. Um, there, I, I think there are a few things going on there. Um, it is climate change is a big diffuse seeming problem. Mm -hmm. It's one that I think people have trouble wrapping their heads around. Um, and so then faced with inflation or, you know, job loss or, um, health issues or other kinds of things, it's, it's quite easy to have those other more immediate concerns uh, take precedent and not recognize that this problem is equally as urgent. The action that's required is absolutely as urgent, but the results of that action are hard to see immediately. So I think that's one part of the problem. The feedback loop. Yes, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we're now, I think some of the reason we're now seeing more um, you know, the movement of health organizations and health professionals that are uh, you know, raising their voices around climate change has really exploded over the last few years. And I think that's because as a health community, we're now seeing more and more of the impacts all around us in the, the patients and the communities that we treat, you know, mm -hmm. with, you know, like all the examples that, that you talked about. But I think the other thing that that we we have to shine a light on and can't dance around is the fossil fuel industry has deliberately and this is documented there. Sure. This is this is well demonstrated, has deliberately um, introduced disinformation, denied the science, influenced politicians um, and worked very, very, very hard to deny climate change, to get others to deny climate change, and to seed uncertainty, um, and to kind of turn turn the focus away from the product that they're making so much money on. Um, it's been deliberate, it's been systematic, and it's had a huge impact. Um, and so that's a big part of the equation as well. Um, so I, I, I think we're, you know, it's a complex and challenging problem that we're facing. It's one that's hard for us as human beings to wrap our heads around and to deal with and to know what to do about. 
Um, and then it, it really doesn't help that we've had uh, organizations, corporations deliberately trying to confuse the issue um, and, and get us to ignore it. Right. In fact, there's recent research that beyond oil and gas, the utility industry has behaved similarly, not not to the extent that oil and gas, but to some extent, certainly similarly. So with that, Jenny, uh, we're at our time. I do appreciate this uh, very important effort. Um, again, I'll note uh, web pages or addresses where people can go if they're interested in pursuing signing. So thank you again, and I wish you every uh, success at at the upcoming, I think it's just three weeks away, the COP27 meeting in Egypt. Yeah, it's coming right up. Well, thank you so much for, for your interest in this issue and, and covering these issues. It's really important to to get the word out there. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope we build the momentum to get the action we need. Yes, let's hope. You take care. You too. Thank you so much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.